Well, welcome. Uh, my name's Eric. I'm the, the lead pastor here, and uh, this is the hello. Uh, this is the fourth week of, of Advent. And if you guys are anything uh, like my wife, my wife loves her Christmas songs. And so you might have come to, to church today and be like, "Oh, we're going to hear a bunch of Christmas songs." You're like, "Where are the Christmas songs?" Except, except for that last, you know, Divine Messiah thing, which kind of sounded depressing. Um, look, tonight. It's tonight. It's tonight. You know, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of, of the meaning of Advent. Advent means a season of waiting and anticipation. And uh, part of that, for me, means waiting to hear the celebration songs until it's time to celebrate. And so, uh, again, we're going to have two gatherings tonight, 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock. We're going to sing the Christmas songs. No more depressing Advent songs. It's going to be, it's time to celebrate. He's here. And we're going to be looking at uh, what I'm just going to call the, the joyful God. But this morning, we're going to wrap up uh, in, in another way this series that we started. And I want to kind of take us back to the beginning. For those of you guys who have been with us on this journey, I want to go back. If you haven't been here, I want to tell you where we've been as a community. This whole gathering, this whole series uh, that we've called Adventus, which is just the Latin for Advent, it started with this concept of shalom which comes out of Leviticus 25 in the Old Testament. And shalom is this very, very rich Hebrew word that, that has all sorts of meanings related to peace and wholeness and security and provision and contentment. It is a holistic sense of just well-being. And this is what God's original intention was for the world and for you and me. And somehow, as things happen, that, that original intention gets a little bit skewed over, over time. And when Jesus comes to the world, and he's born, and when he starts his ministry, he announces all the time, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is with you. The kingdom of God is among you, within you, over and over. It's announcements of the kingdom. And I just want to kind of let you know that when he says that, Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of shalom. It is a kingdom of peace and contentment. It is a, a direct carryover from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And what we started with this series was uh, we, we looked at, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke's story of Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus walks into uh, his hometown church, and he makes a pronouncement. This is how Luke puts it. Uh, in Luke chapter 4, says, Jesus went to Nazareth, his hometown, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. That's their church. He went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. That's a, a book of the Old Testament. And he unrolled it, and he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then the scripture says that he rolled up the scroll and he sat down and he said, uh, according to the text, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And in that way, in, in, God, in Luke's gospel, Jesus announces his kingdom is, is now coming to fruition. 
And then Jesus, uh, in his ministry, in his years alive on earth, that's what he sets about doing, is, is illustrating what that looks like. And so what we did uh, when we started this series is uh, we decided to kind of look at what would happen if we took those words literally. And what if we became essentially like peacemakers, not in just the, the tiny sense of the word, but people who actually try to bring shalom about. And we looked at the, the demographics of, of who Jesus talked about in his statement. And so let me tell you and let me remind you what we've been doing. The first week we looked at the poor and, and we said, well, you know, kind of who can we help? You, you can't help everybody. We should help somebody. And uh, what, what became apparent to me was that there was an under-resourced school, actually many under-resourced schools, right in our backyard in like a three-mile radius. And one of those schools was a school called W.T. Moore. And so we decided to collect um, school supplies the first week. And you guys knocked it out of the park. There was like 280 tags of school supplies, every one of them, and more was gone. And we loaded up my pickup truck. Yes, I own a pickup truck now, for those of you guys who don't know. We, that's my pickup truck. That's, uh, the, the, the cab was full, stocked to the brim. We needed another car also. And we just hauled it over to W.T. Moore, and we said, here you go. Here you go. Teachers, uh, we hope you never have to buy another Clorox wipe ever because we've just given you like 12 cases of Clorox wipes, right? For the teachers, you guys are probably like, yeah, it lasts a week. Um, and then we got our picture taken. Like, and, and, and just so you know, uh, this is a long-term partnership. This wasn't just kind of a drive-by helping thing. We've committed to this school for the long term. And so we're going to go back to them in January and start saying, how can we help you over the long haul? with mentors and, 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 and just folks that we, different ways that we can help. You'll be hearing more about that. So the second week, we looked at prisoners. Jesus says he wants to like provide relief and release for the prisoners. And, and what we decided to do is, is get in touch with this ministry called Kairos, which goes into, goes into prisons and they have multiple day events where they just shower the, uh, the folks who are institutionalized, they, they shower them with God's love. And so the challenge that week was to do this thing called agape, which is to just write letters that tell these, uh, th in this particular event, it's going to be men in Wakulla Correctional Institute. Just tell these guys how much God loves them. And you guys wrote dozens and dozens and dozens of letters. I think we have a picture of them. That's the box. I mean, they're letters, so, you know, it's not this. It's not a stack. This way. But we wrote them in Spanish. We wrote them in English. Well, the kids drew pictures with crayons to just say, God loves you. God loves you. Last week, uh, we talked about the blind, folks who just have physical limitations. And we partnered with an organization locally called Ability First, and we just said, how much, how much work could we do for people over the week? And so uh, last Sunday afternoon, some of us just hauled out of here, drove over to Blunt's, Bluntstown and started building wheelchair ramps. And we worked all week. Every single project that we were given was completed, usually ahead of time. And we just kept seeing pictures and pictures and hearing stories of people who were like, not only did I like doing this and I felt, I want to do it more and more and more and more and more. So that's what we've been up to. And you guys, oh, wait a minute, before I forget, let's hold on that picture. The gentleman, uh, um, all right, this picture, the gentleman on the far left, that's a guy named John Stott, right? John's not here today. 
he was the supervisor on every single one of these projects. Right? We call him, uh, around here he's known as Papa Stott. Uh, if you see him, you thank him. Because he went way above and beyond last week to make sure that everybody could serve. So here, this week, it brings us to the last part of Jesus' uh, statement. And he references that he wants to give release for the oppressed. That's a pretty big demographic of people. The oppressed. And to tell you the truth, man, I, 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 I wrestled with this for a while. And I was trying to figure out, like, um, how do we target? What, what do we do with this? Because it's such a huge category. And what I did is uh, I actually went all the way back to the original language. Now, the, the, the Bible, uh, the Old Testament is written mostly in Hebrew. The New Testament is written mostly in Greek. So here's what the words are uh, for the oppressed. Uh, the, the word for the oppressed in Hebrew is shavar. Let me hear you say, say shavar. And in Greek, it's thrao, thrao. So when you unpack what those words are in these ancient languages, you get some really interesting definitions and meanings because those words mean things like crushed and they mean broken into pieces and they mean torn and they mean rent asunder. There's a, a psychologist named William James, and he talks about how some of us walk around with a sense of torn-to-pieces-hood, which is a really uh, difficult thing to say, but if you've ever felt that way, you know the truth of it. A torn-to-pieces-hood. And so I started there, and I just got to thinking, like, how do people feel oppressed, right? And, and oppressed can be it can happen in a variety of different ways. There could be an economic oppression. There can be an oppression that comes uh, from, from injustice in the world, from uh, racism and prejudice. There can be an oppression that is psychological, internal. There is an oppression that can come from just feeling like an outsider, like you never fit in. With anybody, maybe you know exactly what this feels like, or maybe you know somebody. It's complicated. So what I want to do is just take a short exploration of, of two aspects of, of, of oppression, and then I want to kind of consider two different responses of it. So the first thing I want to just ask is, uh, or explore is, what does oppression, what does being torn to pieces, what is being crushed, what does it feel like? And again, some of us know. I don't have to tell you. But... For those of us, I want to share just something uh, that, that's kind of out of my just experience that just nails this concept for me. There was a movie that came out in the 90s. It's called The Mission. Um, starred Robert De Niro and Liam Neeson and Jeremy Irons. And it was about um, the, the Jesuit mission to Brazil in like the 1700s. And Robert De Niro plays uh, basically a slaver right? And uh, they've been going up into the mountains and capturing native people and then selling them into slavery. And De Niro has an argument with his brother and he kills his brother in like a duel. And he is just in the abject uh, of misery. And Jeremy Irons comes into him and he's a, he's, a, he's a Jesuit monk and he says, look, 
what if, um, would you be willing to choose forgiveness? And De Niro's like, there's no forgiveness for me. And De Niro decides by his own volition that, that he has to do something symbolic to show his torn to pieces hood. And there's this really long sequence that we're just going to watch a piece of that demonstrates what De Niro does to show his crushed feelings. And when I saw this, this ripped me up because I said to myself, I feel like this. And so maybe you will. We're just going to watch part of this and then I'll make some comments. Go ahead and roll that. That's good. So if you don't know what that was, what he's hauling is all of his weapons and all of his armor. And he's climbing a waterfall with it. And he drags it through the jungle. And when I saw that when I was in my you know, mid to late 20s, I knew exactly how that felt like. I didn't haul around 80 pounds of, of weaponry, but I knew what it was like to carry something in my soul. And to feel like every step sometimes was like I was just dragging hundreds of pounds of weight. Anybody know what that feels like? To me, that's what crushed starts to feel like. When every step feels like, oh my gosh. And there are times when, when people come in to just try to help him carry it. And he goes, no, this is mine. And there's a beautiful reconciliation that happens at the end of that scene. But to me, what crushedness feels like is carrying a weight up a mountain some days. And you can barely make one more step. The second thing I want to explore is what does being torn to pieces look like? What does it look like? Now, this is a little bit dicier. So uh, let me show you a, a picture of, of somebody. Maybe you guys know who this is. Anybody? Who? Drago. Ivan Drago from Rocky IV, right? Saw this in the theaters. Not proud of it, but I did. And, and just because it's me and, and I got the microphone, I had to play this. So watch this. Isn't that awesome? I go, uh, uh, I can't even get my voice that low. He must break Rocky. I don't, no spoiler alert, he doesn't because he's Rocky. So um, that actor is Dolph Lundgren, right? Uh, he's six foot five. He looks like to be in pretty good shape. So what does oppression and torn to pieces hood look like? Well, you wouldn't much guess uh, that that has anything to do with Dolph Lundgren. But uh, I know a couple things about Dolph Lundgren that maybe you don't. First of all, um, Dolph Lundgren uh, was a Fulbright scholar he, uh, in chemical engineering. Got his bachelor's. Uh, he's Swedish, but he got his bachelor's from uh, the University of Sydney in Australia, then a master's in Sweden, and then he was offers a Fulbright scholarship to a little uh, college called MIT. <laughs> and in the meantime, kind of fate intervened, 
And uh, he you know, kind of get, got into show business. Here's what I also know about Dolph Lundgren. From about age 3 to 11, he was terrifically physically abused by his father. He said the first thing that he, one of the first times that he can remember, he, he was walking through the living room and he got in front of the television that his dad was watching. And his dad reached out and kicked him as hard as he could. Threw him across the, the living room into a bookcase. And from age 3 to 11, he uh, had to go to school with black eyes and sometimes he'd go to school with part of his hair torn out, right? And he grew up that way. And you wouldn't ever look at that from, from, from that physique and that, that level of success that there is a shatteredness to him, but there is. And, and the way he characterized it in his story is that um, he says, you know, it gets to the point where you're trying to escape from something, but you can't because what you're trying to escape from is inside you. And eventually he, he, he got some healing through, uh, just through some therapy and, 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 and meditation and spirituality, right? But you don't know what shatteredness looks like because it doesn't always look the way you think it is. You can't always look at somebody and go, oh, that person's okay. That person's not. Because we carry this stuff around us, inside us. And Jesus says he wants to find freedom for the oppressed and release the oppressed. And so in the, in the few minutes I have left, I want to look at two aspects of this. You know, so every week we've been trying to go out and do stuff for people. And so what I want to do first of all is kind of say, look, um, where do you start to help with, with people? And particularly, I just want to start with the idea of where do you start when you can't tell? Where do you start when you don't know? And this comes with it. Uh, in a way, it's really basic, and I want to show you kind of what, uh, what this looks like. You see, right after Jesus says this, there's something that's very, very poignant. Right after he says, the scriptures fulfilled in your hearing in Luke 4, it says it has the response of the crowd in verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Now, you know, for us people of faith, we would say, that's oh, not really Joseph's son. It's actually God's son. But, you know, at any, at any rate, the folks are all like, good job, Jesus. We like that. We like this idea of setting the oppressed free. But then Jesus actually uh, immediately tells them a story. Now, check out these words in verse 24. Right after this, Jesus says, truly, I tell you, that no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And then one more, and I'll unpack this. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. If I could paraphrase what Jesus does here, everybody in his hometown is like, yes, let's set the oppressed free. And then Jesus says, oh, actually, let me tell you these two stories about two people who were outsiders and even 
enemies, perceived enemies of God's people. And he says, those are the people that God healed. So the insider's like, go Jesus. Jesus is like, okay, let me tell you who this is actually for. Let me tell you who this release thing is going to be for, not just the insiders, but it's going to be the people that never seem to be a part of the church folks. And then watch the way these folks react. The people who had just said, good job, Jesus. Listen to verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were what? Oh, furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. I don't know how that would have gone. Jesus does not let it happen. He walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Showed them. So let me, let me, let me, let me, let me talk about what this means for me. You see, we get really, really good at helping oppressed people when we recognize that and when we agree with the nature of their oppression. I believe that what Jesus calls us to is to actually get rid of the categories of who deserves our compassion and who doesn't. We don't get to pick and choose what oppression we kind of acknowledge. You don't get to pick and choose what oppression enters into your life through a coworker or through a friend or even a family member. You don't get to make a category of saying, these are the nature of, this is the oppression that I will work to mitigate, and this is the category of people that I'm like, I, no. I think what Jesus would say is if there's a hurting person, it doesn't matter what camp they fall into. It's a compassion. It's a heart. It's a willingness to empathize. And don't, just so you know that I'm not making this up, in Matthew chapter 5, in one of the most uh, powerful statements Jesus makes about life, he says to his followers, um, let me see, verse 43, you've heard it said, that you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. And he's not speaking metaphorically, folks. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God loves everybody equally. Everybody gets rain. Everybody gets sun. And so Jesus says, why don't you love like that? If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? And then Jesus says, be perfect. And the word is there more is like complete. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect and complete. Love like God does. You don't get to choose valid oppression. Hurting people are hurting people in Jesus' world. So um, here's the way I would summarize it. I just wrote this up. If you want to follow Jesus closely, 
if I want to follow Jesus closely, then I should seriously consider adopting a radically compassionate stance to everyone, no matter whether we think them in the right or not, whether we think that their oppression is valid or not. I would say it this way, default to love. Default to love. Default to compassion. If you want to follow Jesus closely. Now, that's just the starters for how to respond. I wanna, I wanna close this way. I wanna close with what, what about the folks in this room, in our community, in your world, that are suffering from a torn to pieces hood right now? What, what do you do when every step is weighted down? What do you do when you feel that really, really um, in, a, in a powerful way? There's a, a few chapters that an uh, early church leader named Paul wrote to a, a little church in Greece called Corinth. Uh, there's a few chapters in, in what we call 2 Corinthians, chapters 4 through 6. And I want to just close with some of his words. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 7, Paul writes this. He's talking about the gospel and, and the presence of God in your life. And he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay, in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And then these words, Paul says, and these aren't metaphors. If you know Paul's life, we are hard-pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. He says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed. Then he skips down in verse 16. And here's, here's the thing. He said, Paul says, therefore, if you're oppressed, if you're torn to pieces, he says, we still don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away. Paul says, somehow we're being renewed every day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Listen, so we fix our eyes on what? Not on what is seen, but where? Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Think about that for a moment. How do you fix your eyes on something that you can't see? Maybe that just struck me more than anybody else. I'm like, if I can't see it, how do I fix my eyes on it? What Paul is talking about here is not just physical eyesight. The, the Greek word there indicates, where's your focus? It's not just things that pass through. Paul says, where do you look? Where do you direct your attention? And he says, not on what is seen, not on the suffering that you might be experiencing. It doesn't negate it. Paul says, fix it on something else. Let me show you a picture of a guy. Uh, this, this guy's name is Viktor Frankl. Pretty sharp looking dude. He's, he's Austrian. He's a psychiatrist, psychologist, eminent 
But unfortunately, um, Viktor Frankl also had the uh, misfortune of being Jewish and practicing in Vienna in the 1920s and 30s and into the 40s. And one day, the Nazis came for him, and Viktor Frankl uh, spent um, a few years in multiple concentration camps. Auschwitz, Dachau. In the concentration camps, Viktor Frankl lost his wife. He lost, uh, I think, two brothers, his parents. He was crushed. He was shattered. But he, uh, he was able to write a, th- uh, write a book, an essay called A Man's Search for Meaning. And what he found was that you could uh, gaze your, take your attention from your external circumstances or even the, the plight of your suffering and turn them somewhere else and find meaning and life. Let me show you just a couple quotes that he uh, offers Uh, There's one about stimulus. Between the stimulus and the response, there's a space. And that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. Where does this all go? Well, I'll tell you. If you guys aren't used to being here, don't worry. I walk around a lot. (laughs) Let me show you where it goes. It goes right over here. It goes right over here to where this Christmas tree was last week and where it'll be back again tonight. But for now, it goes here. It goes here. Because the cross changes everything. Maybe you grew up in a faith tradition that says that that instrument is the thing that just gets you into heaven. But if you read the Bible, the cross is much more powerful than that. Because when Paul says, don't just look at your external circumstances, he says, fix your eyes on something else. And I think what Paul's getting at is like, look, the cross where Jesus died was the instrument of healing and love for the world. And that means that any oppression and suffering that we carry within us can do the same thing. The cross was not the end of Jesus' story. So whatever you're experiencing is not the end of your story. Your story does not end. Viktor Frankl's story did not end in the concentration camp. It went beyond that. But you have to direct your attention somewhere else. We have, Paul says, this treasure in jars of clay. And we're all broken and shattered. You know me at all. These are some of the things that I live and die by. One, to be human is to be broken. There's not a one of us that is untouched by shatteredness. To be human is to be broken. The second thing is that uh, if you are suffering today, God has not abandoned you. There's hope. Your story does not end. It does not have to end with your suffering. And the last thing I would just say, in fact, the very thing that you are suffering from 
can actually be the cause of healing for somebody else in the world. You have a reason for living. And that is that your suffering can actually help somebody else heal and connect with somebody else who's suffering. The cross says that you are infinitely loved regardless of what you're going through or experiencing. And your story doesn't end this way. So here's what we're going to do. The band's going to play a last song, and we've been responding uh, and getting tags off of the Christmas tree. Today the response is different. There's shards of, of pottery up here with Sharpies. We're going to keep the Sharpie bit, uh, company in business for a while. So as the band plays, the first thing you're invited to do is come up here and get one of these and get a pen and name your torn to pieces hood. Name where you are crushed. Just write it. Not a paragraph, just a word. And you take this, and you take it to this cross over here. And when you take it over here, you understand that Jesus knows your pain. Jesus' heart was broken on the cross, and yet he still had love and compassion for the world. So name it, write it, and come over here and drop it. But when you come over here, you're going to notice there's another pile with words already written on them. This is to remind you that you don't get to pick and choose the brokenness you're going to come into contact with. So just reach down and pick up, a, pick up another piece and take it. This one says depression. I don't get to pick and choose what brokenness comes into my orbit. But this is to remind me that anybody who does, I am called to love and be compassionate towards. Amen? I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're just going to listen to the band, and, and you guys respond as God leads you.